Oh. <clears throat> Hello. Welcome to the program. I was just reading what we're about to read together. Just this microphone. I'm sitting at a desk instead of sitting on the floor. Because I have so much in front of me. I was going to read about crypto cribs in the mansion section of the Wall Street Journal for today, Friday, January 28th, 2022, at a time of 3.13 p.m. But instead I was looking through my stack of books and I found what I think is a most entertaining pamphlet, um, illuminating pamphlet as well. It's really about, um, it's from 19... It's literally a pamphlet. It's about 10 pages. Printed in 92. On the 100th birthday of the last president of the Koreshian Unity, who was its member for a period of 50 years. And I'm talking about Hedvig Michel. I think that's how you would say it. Either way, Hedwig was the last sort of controller of everything that was the Koreshian Unity, the organization that remained after Teed passed. And she leaves a quote here on the back of this pamphlet. Be ashamed to die until you have won some victory for humanity. And if you're interested, the Koreshian Unity, you can write to Koreshian Unity Books, P.O. Box 97, Estero, Florida, 33928. It's a $4 pamphlet written by Odeda Rosenthal. Hedwig Mikkel, the patron saint of the Koreshian State Historic Site. This is uh, really fascinating, and there, the... The more modern book written in 2015 by Lynn Milner is excellent um, and it gives a, a, an up-to-date account. But I think that this is a fascinating account because this is from, I mean, let's see. Yes, 1992, um, but a little bit closer to the events. I just think gives inter- interesting perspective. And plus, it is completely out of print. It's just a little 10-page booklet. So like to share it with you. I think it gives a good overview of why I find the entire story fascinating. No one could have guessed from her beginnings that Hedwig Mikkel would oversee the donation of the historic property of the Koreshian Unity to the state of Florida, and that so many people would come to enjoy it. The Koreshian State Historic Site in Estero, located in southwest Florida, midway between Fort Myers and Naples, would not exist without her visionary donation. And who would have imagined that she would be the last Koreshian? What indeed is a Koreshian? Information about the history and philosophy of the Koreshian unity, a unique experiment in Christian living based on the illumination of Dr. Cyrus Teed, who aimed to build a new Jerusalem in Estero in 1894, can be found in another booklet. We will tell you here that the idea was that the members would develop a place somewhat like heaven on earth. They would share work, share the products of the land, enjoy the arts, and use natural, herbal, and other medical ways to keep healthy. They would be creative. Like 
The Shakers and other celibate groups, men would be separated from women, and families that entered the Koreshian unity with children would also live separately from them. But all would be concerned about the welfare of each other till death would part them, and women would have equal rights to with men 40 years before women in America managed to win the right to vote. It's worth noting up above, um, but that's, that's all very accurate. Um, well, mostly. Mm. It's accurate enough for the time. Um, I will say the uh, book written in 2015 gives a way more enlightened view about the the relationship between men and women in the unity. It wasn't terrible necessarily, but it was uh, more complex than described here. But I'll continue. Uh, so it may be of significance that not only the first, but the last president of the Koreshian unity was a woman. That last, and indeed the last Koreshian living the life at Astero, was Hedvig Michel. It is all the more fascinating to discover the Hedvig, that Hedvig's birthplace was far from Florida, in Germany, and that she was born a Jew. This, then, is the story of a visionary, a practical dreamer, a woman ahead of her times who was the benefactor of a park which in the year 1991 alone served at least 44,000 people from the United States and overseas. It is also the story of a group which has, for too long, been very misunderstood. Hedvig's birthplace was far from Florida. She was born in 1892, two years before the Christian Unity community in Estera was founded, into a very intellectual, devout, Orthodox Jewish family in the German city of Frankfurt, which is located on the River Main. This is one of Germany's most historic cities and has long been a thriving showcase of music and art and to this day is the center of the international book trade. The Jewish community of Frankfurt has roots in that city going back some 900 years, it was a large, close-knit community, very strict in its obedience to Jewish dietary law and social codes and the strict observance of the Sabbath. Hedrick's parents, Ferdinand and Elsa Mary Michel, already had three other children then, and the family lived on Gartnersveg Street, the street which was known as the Path of Glorious Gardens. Her father was a professor of French, Hedvig was brought up to speak the various European languages, but like the other daughters, she was not given much of a background in the Hebrew writings of Jewish lore, although her brother was fully trained. Each of the Michel children was encouraged to be involved in the arts and to develop talents and interests. Each seemed to follow a path that was not exactly what their parents expected. Elsa, for instance, became one of the first to develop new colored glasses for pottery. Her ceramic creations were exhibited and prized by collectors, but she chose to go to what was then called Palestine, where, in the 1920s, groups of young Jewish intellectual and artistic people were attracted to build the new land of Israel. These young people, who had been brought up in the cities, would turn to farming in creative communal settlements. Elsa was part of the early pioneers of the Third Aliyah, whose enthusiasm was often ended by the loss of life to malaria or some other tropical disease. The languages spoken there at the time were mainly Hebrew and Arabic. Maybe because of lack of language ability, and for other reasons, she became attracted to the work of German-speaking Swiss Baptist missionaries. 
She converted and set off to become a missionary aiming to convert the Jews to Christianity. She clearly did not reach her goal. She returned to Europe a few years later when her parents discovered that she converted. They sat Shiva, it says in quotes, they went through the traditional seven-day mourning period for the dead. To them, their daughter's embrace of Christianity was equal to that. She chose to move to Switzerland, where she later died in old age. Ida was trained as an x-ray technician. In those days, it was a very special profession. Few believe that this diagnostic tool, which is so commonly used today, really could see right through the flesh and onto the bone. Ida worked for a radiologist named Dr. Einstein of the Einstein family, of which Albert Einstein was a part. That family was very much involved in what was then the newest aspect of the world of science, the technical and the electronics industry. Hedvig, the third daughter, was trained for the business world. The kind of training, uh, excuse me, this kind of training was considered the ultimate for a bright young woman who had a strong sense of self and was not afraid to deal with the public. Besides, by the time her turn came for higher education, the funds were not as available as for the others. In later years, in Estero, she delighted in deciphering German language shorthand. But as a young woman, she worked as a secretary for the director of the renowned Frankfurt Opera and was very much involved with the cultural scene until her own brother, Max Friedrich, took over as director. He fired her. His logic was that the rules stated that the management of the opera house was not to hire an immediate relative, but she had been an employee there before he came. This convoluted dismissal infuriated her. I might also add that um, um, the shorthand, uh, correspondence shorthand was, I believe, the initial way that Teed made some uh, capital starting up. Max Friedrich was the oldest of the lot. He was also the only son. The importance was that the importance that was attached to that fact by her parents annoyed Hedvig to no end, not only as a female who had a strong sense of self, but because she was the youngest and forever considered the quote young one. Max had been sent to the finest schools, had attended the university, and become a lawyer. He went on to become the attorney general of the city of Frankfurt, an unofficial host to artists of note and other dignitaries to the city, and the director of the opera house. Hedwig was a strong, had a strong urge to be a public service. In 1914, at the start of the First World War, when she was 22, she gave of her time to the displaced people who needed medical attention and shelter. A letter of thanking for her services with a fancy ribbon attached, noting that it was from the Lazarette 98 Center and that the Kaiser was thankful for worthy citizens like her was one of her prized possessions. And only, uh, and one of the only mementos of her early life that she managed, that managed to survive. And there's an inset photo of it. Hedwig had not wished to marry, but it was expected that she would. She chose to marry a man who some said was bore, unmannered, and ugly, although he had a lot of money. His name was Joseph Levy, and he was a banker. He clearly did not fit into this elegant and intellectual family. Her parents were not eager for this union. Max let it be known long before the wedding that he was not happy with her choice, but his objection did not deter the strong-minded Hedwig. She went ahead with the plans. For her honeymoon, she chose to go to Sicily, the gathering place of European people in the arts. From there, she sent a gift of a donkey for her brother. 
He refused it. It became her pet. The gossipers of Frankfurt had fun with this tale, but from then she was not very welcome in her brother's home. The marriage was a short-lived relationship. Although they did not divorce right away, the couple separated. Joseph Levy chose to move to London before Hitler took over Germany in 1932. Hedwig, who was then 40, chose to stay. Feeling herself a true German, she apparently would not forgive Britain for the First World War. She did keep the large and impressive home that her husband had purchased for her, the home in which many elegant parties had been given. By the mid-1930s, few thought about parties in Germany. The Great Depression that we had often heard of in American... Hmm. In American. The Great Depression that we have often heard of in America had first arrived in Germany. Hedwig herself needed money for her daily life. She was not offered any financial assistance from her family, and she could not find work since the few jobs that were open were not being offered to Jews under Nazi orders. While her husband, who was living in London, could not transfer money out of Germany, she could use this money in Germany. She decided to open a school in her large home. It was meant for the daughters of rich parents, Jewish girls, who could not attend the German public school systems anymore due to Nazi rules. Hedwig herself had never been a mother, nor did she have any official training as an educator. She was not a very maternal sort of person, but Fred Cates, her nephew, recalled that she was always eager to be among young children and that she had a knack for finding delightful and odd gifts for them. He himself was sent a pair of ponies and a festive cart from Mexico when he was a child. Hedwig had visited Mexico when some of Spain's outstanding artists moved there during the Spanish Civil War. The school which Hedwig developed was based on new teaching methods. She focused on what would today be called student-oriented learning to find the gifted areas of each child. This was at a time of stress, a time of uncertainty, but she concentrated on the good and found the potential of a fulfilled future. For a number of years, she ran the school until her bank account was frozen and realizing that one by one, parents who were paying the bills were disappearing. They would be hauled away in the dead of night and never seen again. It was not only the loss of money, but the psychological state of the ever-increasing number of suddenly orphaned children that had become a serious problem for her to handle. She began at last to wonder about her own fate. By then, Henrietta Sold, the founder of the Hasada, had begun to set up a youth aliyah program which smuggled Jewish children from Nazi-occupied lands to safe havens. Old as she was, the times required drastic measures— the assured place was Palestine, which was then under British mandate rule. This was the route that Hedvig appears to have taken, chaperoning the last few children she could not place elsewhere. When she left, she knew full well that her parents, her sister Ida, and husband, and teenage children, a sister with whom she was very close, had not yet left and were in danger. Ida, turned out, left shortly thereafter with her children and mother, but could not leave Germany by boat. The men had been hauled away. Unable to leave by boat, they managed to sneak out of Germany on a train which was headed for Russia. They hoped to travel to Manchuria, cross the border to China, and maybe thus find a way to America across the Pacific Ocean. The tale is told that when Hedwig's mother came to Moscow, she wanted to get off the train to see the newly built Moscow subway, which was said to be the most beautiful in the world. She became even more ill in that city than she had been at the start of the trip and decided that she did not have the strength to continue. She begged the others to go on while she stayed in the care of a doctor. In any event, she did not continue. 
Sad, but needing to face realities, Ida and her children went on alone. This was the only chance they would have to save themselves from the oncoming Nazi army. They did cross to Manchuria and from there to China. At Shanghai, they found their way to America on the last boat leaving for San Francisco before the United States found itself at war with Japan. Hedvig had then, uh, by then, been managed to arrive in America. She rarely spoke of her reason for leaving Palestine, although when she arrived there, it was not as primitive as as her sister had found it. The country was blooming and full of vitality. Maybe she found it too was lacking a background in he- maybe she found that she too was lacking a background in Hebrew and her insistent use of German was a hindering factor. But it is known that she did leave for America just at the time when the American consulate issued a warning to its citizens to return to the United States as America was about to declare it was not going to remain neutral after the Germans sank an American ship. Um, Hedwig landed in New York as one of the numerous last refugees to be given entry. Legend has it that it was an American woman from New Jersey on board the ship who offered to sponsor her. In this manner, she was quickly released from Ellis Island, where all undocumented immigrants were otherwise being held before being shipped back to their country of origin. It appears that this woman was Mrs. Louis Boomer, the wife of the president of the Waldorf Astoria in New York. He was the son of the Koreshans and brought up at Astero. What? Huh. Interesting. Hedwig landed in New York as one of the numerous last refugees to be given entry. Legend has it that it was an American woman from New Jersey on board the ship who offered to sponsor her. In this manner, she was quickly released from Ellis Island, where all undocumented immigrants were otherwise held before being shipped back to the country of origin. It appears that this woman, Mrs. Lewis Boomer, the wife of the president of the Waldorf Astoria in New York, he was the son of the Koreshans. He was the son of Koreshans, wow, and was brought up in Estero. Fascinating. In America, she tried to restructure her life, along with her sister Ida. Hedvig's brother was there with his family, but he was not any more eager to open the doors of his home to her than before. She needed a haven. She had already heard about the Koreshian unity in Florida while she was in Germany from a Peter Bender. And who was he? Peter Bender was a young man Hedwig had hired to be a teacher of English in her school. He had come to Germany to do graduate work in mathematics and found the universities in disarray. Why it is that Bender, an American, would take on a job as a teacher of Jewish children at a time of growing danger instead of returning to America is not clear. Nor is it clear what Peter Bender's connection was with the Koreshans. One also wonders just how unaware he was of the fact that major German mathematicians, be they Christians who objected to the Nazis, or Jews like Albert Einstein, had left Germany in disgust. But they did not advertise their secret escapes. Apparently, Peter Bender had studied in Chicago. There he had come across information about the Koreshian Unity, which was founded in Chicago in 1888. Bender may have misjudged his own life, for he seems to have been a victim uh, of the Nazis horrible, but he clearly did not match Hedwig up with the right group. 
The Koreshans had some Germanic background in their history. They encouraged women to be individualistic and creative, had strong interests in horticulture, and a high regard for what seemed to be the oddball pioneering aspects of sciences which are often ignored or scoffed at by the academic world. Uh, the world of pseudoscience. I will editorialize and insert there. Christianity has attracted her sister, and she was attracted too. Hebrew-lettered Bibles were as treasured among the Koreshans as they were in her parents' home. In fact, the Koreshan Library owns a Bible of 1816 dated back to Napoleonic times. It includes a Hebrew-English-French transliteration. Hedwig made contact with the Koreshan unity shortly after she found her way to America in 1940. By then, the Koreshan unity group needed some new faces. The membership was aging. The building stood in gross disrepair, covered with cobwebs. The gardens were full of weeds. Their finances were shaky. A new member with zest was welcome. She came to Fort Myers and stayed with a former member for, at first. Then, after a six-month trial period, she was accepted. Following her move to the Koreshan Unity, her first job was to label trees. She then worked on upgrading the merchandise of the general store which faced the Tamiami Trail, now Route 41, which I, as you go and visit it, if you look to your right as you're driving up to it, um, if you're driving south, you will see the store right there on the side of the road. They have it somewhat preserved uh, for viewing. It's still standing there. Um, she soon became known as the Fort Myers... She soon became known by the Fort Myers merchants as a sharp-witted businesswoman. Koreshan Unity products, which she was now developing again, became as respected for their quality as they had been 50 years earlier. Exotic marmalades were made from long-neglected but fruitful trees which had been planted by the pioneers. Whole-grain beads, excuse me, whole-grain breads were snapped up by customers, and the crafts were eagerly, eagerly sought. This is as uh, well edited as you might assume a pamphlet with 10 pages would have been edited in 1992 without a computer. So, I apologize. All right. Back to where we were. Exotic marmalades were made from the long-neglected but fruitful trees which had been planted by the pioneers. Whole-grain breads were snapped up by customers, and the crafts were eagerly sought. Which is fun. That the It currently remains a, um, a place for uh, uh, a farmer's market uh, weekly, I believe. I just went to it. It was, uh, it was very nice. She had dreams of attracting young people to the community. Celibacy does not, after all, assure a new generation of homegrown followers. What's more, Hedvig mentioned in one of her articles in the American Eagle, she still hoped to run a school in the manner she had begun years earlier. She wanted to revitalize the general adult education program, one of the core ideas of the pioneer efforts of the Koreshans at the turn of the century, even when adult education or community colleges were unheard of in America. It had all been quite an adjustment for Hedvig, as she herself recalled in old age, only six years before she died, whenever she owned the had been sent out of Germany was confiscated at the Belgian port of Antwerp and never seen again. She had to restart her life with only $10 in her pocket. 
but she loved the challenge. She rarely reflected on the past and the painful memories. She once mem- uh, she once mentioned that in coming to Astero and joining the Correction Unity, that she had managed to turn a paradise lost to a paradise found. Ever eager to revitalize the dream of a new Jerusalem, she set about to restore the botanical gardens, the cultural program and festivals, the creative tone uh, and the creative tone of the community. Some found her ways a bit too forceful. <laughs> some may have objected to her Jewish heritage, but some prejudice was not part of the original but such prejudice was not part of the original Koreshian beliefs. I mean, they did literally read from Hebrew Bibles, so I, I'm going to I'm going to tend to agree at least right here. In the 19 19- in 1942, at the age of 50, Hedwig became an American citizen at a courthouse in Tampa. She had managed to master enough English by then with the aid of Evelyn Horn, a granddaughter of a Koreshian pioneer family. Evelyn can recall that with the... Hmm. Evelyn can recall that with the president of the Koreshian unity, Lawrence Babette, Hedwig developed a goat farm. Awesome. This farm was located where the information office of the state park now stands. Okay. If it's still where it is. Hedwig clearly had far more vision and energy than some of the elderly of the group cared to deal with. Oh, right. Okay. She's young and vital and wants to reinvent and bring it back to life and they're you know they don't they don't want to deal with that because they're living in like a basically a tiny neighborhood in the swamp and they're old i i can i can understand that at the end of the second world war when a booming uh, building boom began the value of property in the area had grown and so had the real estate taxes but the Koreshian treasury was running low by 1949 the american eagle the Koreshian news publication folded Shortly thereafter, the publishing house and corporation office building burnt down. Fires had long been a hazard in the area as much as floods, but this seemed like a fatal blow. No hands were available to rebuild the damage. That was when some became rather earnest about selling the land for development, but Hedwig felt otherwise. She would not give in. By 1952, when at the age of 60, Hedwig was listed as one of the directors, a meeting was held on the first day of February to determine what would be the final fate of Koreshian Unity, Inc. Hedwig insisted that consideration should be given to her idea. She had dreamed of retaining the grounds as a historical spot which should never be open, which... (laughs) which should be open to the general public. The dream of Dr. Teed's New Jerusalem Jerusalem was, as she saw it, not simply a place in religious terms, but a peaceful haven and a natural setting where one can enjoy the fruits of God's creation as well as the labor of the creative mind. I mean, that's, that's what it is. That is what she had found after years of turmoil. She was eager to share it. She was most grateful for the legacy of the work of the naturalist Henry Nerling, whom she called the patron saint of Florida gardens and became close to his widow as well as other conservationists. I'll have to learn about him. Henry Nerling. Henry Nerling. Okay. With optimism, Hedwig began in 1965 to publish the American Eagle once more. Awesome. I'll have to track that down too. American Eagle, 1965. 
She focused not only on philosophy, but on the wise use of land and nature. She also began writing a column on gardening for the Fort Myers newspaper. Yes, the Fort Myers newspaper. Okay, so awesome. I'm definitely going to look that up. I have archives access. She started conservation programs for children. In fact, her efforts led to the environmental studies programs at some branches of Florida's state university system. Huh. Conservation, environmental studies, and a focus on natural products are all part of what is today considered as wonderful. But until recently, such talk was seen as somewhat odd and picky and almost subversive to the American free enterprise system. Uh, yeah, I was certainly seen as that. Even today, the national park system, I feel, is like one act of Congress away from not existing. But Hedwig kept a steady course. As luck would have it, news of German reparation for war losses reached Hedwig. The Germans were prepared to pay for the money, land, and lives they had confiscated and ruined. In 1954, Hedwig traveled to Germany to arrange for compensation and a pension. The Opera House of Frankfurt was destroyed by Allied bombing, but Hedwig's home stood untouched. Still, she wanted none of it. She wanted nothing to do with Germany anymore, although she could not shake her heavy German accent. The German funds opened a new chapter in the story of the Koreshian unity. Hedwig could now assure that the historic site and the buildings and grounds would, indeed, retain a life of their own. As others left, shares were redistributed till she owned more than 50%. When Hedwig's brother died, her sister-in-law, Loshka, was welcomed to Estero. Wow. She visited but did not stay. Mm. However, a warmer bond was established. When Hedwig's sister Ida, who was a frequent visitor to the Estero community, died, the aging Hedwig could hardly accept it. It was one time... It was at that time it seemed that she was stunned into inaction, but not for long. Her focus remained on the park. It took some heated arguments and four years before the Board of Trustees of the Koreshian Unity agreed to contact Governor Leroy Collins regarding Hedvig's plan, and it took at least six months for him to reply. He said that, quote, a state park is needed in Lee County, and this seems to be an excellent idea. Now the word was sitting on his desk. He needed that and then signed off on it. All of that works out for us, of course, so we should be happy. In 1961, during Governor Ferris Bryant's tenure, Hedwig's idea was accepted and became a reality. The gift offered to the people of the state became available to them. The, the history, which it represented, was kept intact. The Crescent State Historic Site is now a separate entity. The artwork in the art hall is owned by the state, but many of the articles currently on exhibit in the other park buildings still belong to the Koreshian Unity, as does the Koreshian Cemetery, which I really, really need to go visit. The final project with Hed which Hedvig undertook was to supervise the building of the Koreshian Library and the Pioneer Research Center on Koreshian property across the way from the entrance to the park. It is a round building, not unlike the bread, the... I'm sorry. The hala that is eaten by Jews at the beginning of their new year, representing hopes for a life that is round without sharp edges of harmony with no beginning and no end. Here, the vast collection of books, documents, and artifacts of the Koreshian unity 
are stored and available to the public. Here, too, is the core of a dreamed-of new university of life. And there's a model of it below. Um, I... I must have like missed that explicitly when I was there. I'll have to I'll have to revisit that because I need to pour through documents if they are available. Hedwig died in 1982 at the age of 90. She is not buried in the Crescent Cemetery. Ever since ever since she came to the Crescent Unity, she had lived on the grounds of the community. Even after it became a park, she continued to live there. When she died, she was buried in the midst of the area of life of the Koreshian unity. It is said that if you look closely, you will see Hedwig's profile in the natural rock marker above her grave. The library and the heritage the Koreshians, of the Koreshians is now in the hands of Joe Bigelow, who is an aide to Hedwig, her editor at the Fort Myers newspaper and a close friend. She is the current president of the Koreshian Unity Foundation as of 1992, Special thanks to Fred Cates of New York City, Ida's son, and to Valinda and Mrs. Loshka Michel of Beekhurst and Sagaponak, New York, widow of Max, the creative catalyst of this volume. Odetta Rosenthal holds degrees in art history comparative and comparative languages. She has published extensively on off-ignored history, linguistic misunderstanding, color, vision, confusion, and other forms of miscommunication. She has designed many exhibitions of historic content in the United States and overseas. Her most recent book of history, published in 1988, Not Strictly Kosher, Pioneer in New Zealand, 1831-1901, to has become a major reference. In 1989, she was named Fellow of the American Jewish Archives. This booklet was written while she was a fellow of and consultant to the Koreshian Unity Library and Pioneer Research Center in the winter of 1992. Wow, she even did the graphic design. I um, treasure this, truly. It's a wonderful pamphlet. And there's a picture of her on the front giving a tour. I would have loved to receive a tour from her. Um, and uh, the cover image, if you're looking at the podcast, will be of her uh, beautiful grave marker. It's it's quite uh, it's quite interesting. They they placed her right kind of in the middle, so everyone has to walk past and 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 notice her. And I think that's uh, it's beautiful, since she is truly the, among many other things, the the savior of that community and uh the you know the one to preserve it for all time and bring it to our attention and without that without the state park i don't think that lynn milner's book would exist so uh hedvig thank you thank you so much and i will learn more about your history and we will start right now by reading i'm just going to open up and read the preface to give us a little bit of the um, broad overview of the situation i feel like i've dove in a little bit too much into the characters without giving you a little bit of the broad the broad structure of the story so here we go i'm reading just the preface of lynn milner's uh the allure of immortality here we go in New York State, in 1869, lived a charismatic man named Cyrus Teed, who believed he was a prophet. 
He was 30 when an angel came to visit him in a vision and told him he was chosen to redeem humanity. Teed was distantly related to Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon Church, and no doubt influenced by his cousin's success. He had hazel eyes, a bushy beard, and a determination to find followers, which he did, though much more slowly than he would have liked. Through a series of events, and against great odds, his people, the Crescens, came to southwest Florida to build a socialist religious utopia. At its height, in 1903, the community numbered 200 people. The last believer died in 1974. The Crescens quit their comfortable lives to follow a man to a hot, humid wilderness where they battled mosquitoes, snakes, alligators, wild hogs, freezes, fires, hurricanes, and illness to build a city. They left jobs, sold businesses, surrendered their possessions to the group, and, in many cases, deserted their families. Most of the followers were women, several of whom left their husbands. They were not the rough pioneer types. Their photos attest to that. They read Greek and formed an orchestra and took voice lessons and painted. They were educated, cultured, well-off, and yet their view of the world seems outlandish. For one, they believe that we live inside a hollow earth. Quote, we live inside was a slogan that they printed on lecture announcements, lapel pins, and on the sign in front of their settlement in Florida. This motto was accompanied by an illustration of the earth hinged to reveal the continents and cosmos inside. Sometimes the Crescens added a touch of humor to We Live Inside. Quote, drop in and see us. I fucking love these people. I am literally obsessed. The Crescens were celibate and the men and women lived apart. Today, people point to this as proof that they were not forward thinking. How did they expect the community to survive? People ask if they didn't have children. The answer is this. The Koreshans believe that by conserving and redirecting their sexual potency, that they would transform themselves into immortal beings. Having sex, by contrast, would ensure their mortality. Inevitably, there were some children, and today there are living descendants who recall that their grandparents and great-grandparents were quiet on the topic of Koreshanity. One reason for the reticence was that even as late as the mid-1900s, the Koreshans were stigmatized. Most of them had been children when they joined. They left as soon as they were old enough. Even so, outsiders kept their distance as if being a, a Koreshan were contagious. Therefore, most of today's descendants grew up with only a vague idea about the most important part of their elders' lives. The Koreshans survive in memory as a peculiar people from another time, their history evaporating in spite of the fact that they were part of one of the most important movements in America. It's very true inspiring from every single direction. This book tells their story. Though parts of it seem unbelievable, it is a work of nonfiction. No detail or event was invented. Every quotation is from a written source or interview because all of the believers are dead. I leaned on archives, oral histories, letters, journals, meeting minutes, court testimony, photos, and a host of experts. Where possible, I sought confirmation from more than one source. However, and this is a big however, this story depends on part of newspaper articles, most of which were written during the era of yellow journalism. In Teed's time, much like today, publishers sought to entertain more than inform. Wherever I used a newspaper as a source, I made it clear in the text in an endnote or both. I have done my best to write a book that is accurate and true, not only because I am a journalist, but because of the overall theme of this book is belief, what we believe, and why. The Koreshans' faith shaped their lives and drove them to accomplish incredible feats. This story shows how unshakable belief can, uh, how unshakable faith can be, even when it runs to counter reality. Even when the fact bleeds through, belief has the power to triumph. 
Today, the Koreshans are buried in two cemeteries not far from the settlement they built. Only one of their graveyards is accessible. It lies inside a gated golf course community near a river. Records show that their bodies were placed with their heads to the west and their feet to the east, consistent with the belief that on Judgment Day the dead will rise and face the morning sun. And that's it. I'm going to leave you there and um, definitely continue next time with a little more of just the regular stories that we do, but also um, a little more of the detail on Cyrus Teed himself. Jump